Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Three D printing is super hot in the medical device industry these days. I'm sure you come across stories, maybe on a daily basis, about three D printing and the impact that it is having on medical device technologies in some way, shape, or form. In this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I talk with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Mike and I talk about several topics related to three D printing in including how 3D printing can impact new product development as well as be an alternate means for manufacturing, something to really consider. So be sure to tune in and listen to this exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, I've got with me on the podcast, Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences. Mike works with medical device companies. He works with FDA. He works with Health Canada. He is helping everyone in this medical device industry navigate these regulations. And actually, that is one of the topics that Mike and I are going to explore today is there is a new guidance document on 3D printing that FDA recently published, and we're going to jump into that. So, Mike, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to, to speak with you and your audience. So, Mike, you and I have chatted a bit about 3D printing. I understand that that uh, you recently uh, were part of a webinar on the topic, and I know that uh, you're keeping uh, everything up to speed as far as what's happening on this this exciting topic of 3D printing. So if you could take a moment and, and enlighten me and, and help educate our audience a little bit about the topic and why it matters from an FDA perspective, that would be fantastic. Sure, John. Thanks again for the opportunity. Uh, happy, to, happy to do it. So 3D printing, the idea is actually not new. It's been around for several decades now. And in the specifically in the medical world, we have now more than 85 medical devices that have been brought to the market here in the United States That is three. that is through the FDA that are 3D printed. And in the interest of full disclosure, I've had my fingers in many of them, certainly not all of them, but in many of them. Uh, so it's an area that I've worked in for a very long time. And separate from the device world for a moment, what some of your audience may not know is that FDA actually approved the first 3D printed drug just last August here in the oh. United States. So simply put, 3D printing, although to many people sounds like new, almost Star trek technology, it's really not. And, and it's really been around and it's, it's, it's growing tremendously in popularity for all kinds of reasons that we'll get into today. Sure. So... FDA recently came out with with a guidance document on this topic. So even though the top, the, as you mentioned, 3D printing has been around for decades, and now over 85 products have gone through the FDA process of of, of getting device clearance. Why the the sudden uh, uh, urge or or interest in this topic from the FDA? What, what's going on? 
Well, that's a good question, John. So to be fair, I wouldn't exactly say that it's a sudden urge. In fact, this guidance has been under development for quite a long time. It was just finalized just this past May. And for the benefit of your audience, the title of the guidance is Technical Considerations for Additive Manufactured Devices. Additive manufacturing is just a, a synonym for 3D printing or rapid prototyping. So the guidance was finalized on May 10th, and you can find the guidance on FDA's website, or if you you can't send me an email, I'll be happy to send it yeah. to you. But it's been under it's been under development for a long time. I personally think that this guidance should have been finalized an awful long time ago, probably at least ten years ago, because the the crux of your question, you know, uh, why is is FDA doing this? As you and I have talked about the, in the past. Oftentimes, companies are not keen or at the very least are hesitant on pursuing new technologies before there's any real defined regulation or guidance on it. And so the lack of guidance, the lack of regulation in this area has really held us back. On the flip side, you know, me being the contrarian that I am, as we've talked about before, I love working in areas where there is no regulation or guidance, but most people don't don't look at it that way. Right, right. So... On that guidance document too, Mike, I'll I'll make sure that we provide a link to that in the blog post that accompanies this this podcast too. So we'll have a link to that, and and um, you know again you can you can contact Mike or myself if if you can't find that or the link's inactive for some reason. But uh, let's dive into explore this topic a little bit further. You know, for me, one of the things I was at an event. It's called a couple months ago. Time flies when you're having fun. But anyway, I was at an event and there was someone that was actually presenting on this topic of 3D printing. And this this lady, I don't remember her exact title or role, but anyway, she was certainly presenting this as a, a viable option. 3D printing as a viable option for hospitals. And as she was speaking about 3D printing and the benefits of this technology being used in a hospital to print medical devices, lots of red flags started going off in my head. So uh, what thoughts do you have about that? Well, I think, John, what you're starting to get into are what some of the true advantages of 3D printing are. And 3D printing uh, is an example of what I call personalized medicine. When most people think of personalized medicine, they usually think of pharma. They usually think of something called pharmacogenomics. But some of my favorite examples of personalized medicine are from the medical device world, like, for example, 3D printing. So let's think about it this way. So most of our medical devices that we make today, although we make them in maybe a few different sizes, they're really not designed for one particular patient. And when you think about it, we're all different. Our anatomy is different, our physiology, our molecular biology, our biochemistry. So why should all of our medical devices essentially be the same? One of the most significant advantages of 3D printing is that it truly allows us to make devices that are, if you will, customized for one particular patient's anatomy or physiology. We don't have to take the one-size-fits-all approach anymore. So that's one significant advantage. Another significant advantage is why do we have to make medical devices or, for that matter, drugs thousands at a time or millions at a time in some manufacturing facility and then package them and ship them and store them until we actually use them? One of the advantages of 3D printing is that it allows us to take a truly just 
just-in-time approach to manufacturing. In other words, literally being able to make the device moments or maybe even seconds before we need to use it in the patient. So those are just two of the advantages. But as you can imagine, along with those advantages come some challenges as well. Yeah, and those are fantastic ways to look at it from a from an, an advantage standpoint. I guess the, the the part where the red flag started going off in my head is when I heard a hospital talking about how they are printing uh, medical devices, and you know I didn't dive I didn't into the specifics with this particular person to find out why or why not or you know, how they're dealing with, with regulations and things. But the, the red flag is once you start printing medical devices from a hospital level, doesn't that make that hospital now a medical device manufacturer, Mike? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, and one can certainly make the argument in that direction. I can tell you that uh, from a regulatory perspective, this question is actually not unique. It's the same question when hospitals do reprocessing, for example. Is that subject to FDA regulation or oversight when a pharmacist practices pharmaceutical compounding, something that we've been doing for hundreds of years? Is that subject to FDA oversight when we talk about things like lab developed tests or LDTs? Is that subject to FDA oversight? Definitely 3D printing, especially in the scenario that you just described, where it's done in a hospital or never mind in a hospital, how about in a physician's office? Right. Uh, is that subject to FDA oversight? And why should we assume that it's going to be done in a hospital or even in a physician's office? What about the 3D printers that are becoming uh, readily available for home use? I know. As a matter of fact, there's a an example that I use in my uh, 3D printing uh, seminar of a high school kid who made orthodontic braces for himself just this past summer for 60 bucks. <laughs> and you're, you're laughing, but, uh, but, you know, so the question becomes, what if any FDA regulation or oversight is going to be involved in there? Suffice it to say, the jury is still out on that yeah. one. I think that what, what our immediate challenge is, is how do our traditional medical device manufacturers, such as the ones that you and I both help work with, how will they struggle with the, the challenges of 3D printing? Right, right. And I, I, I laugh. My, my children, uh, while well, my daughter is, is finishing up her, her first round of braces on her teeth, and my son has already had braces on his teeth. So 60 bucks sounds pretty attractive versus what I've been paying for orthodontics for my children. So I can, uh, I can certainly imagine. <laughs> so from a, from a company perspective, and if, again, uh, one of the things we wanted to get into is, is the guidance here a little bit. The guidance sort of separates things into two general areas. And by the way, this guidance is very high level. It's I certainly encourage your audience to to read through it. It's not that long, but Mike, it's also Mike, Mike, Mike. Will you read it for me? <laughs> I'm just kidding. kidding. (laughs) No, John, I I know that your audience is all very smart people and they've graduated from elementary school, so I'm sure they know (laughs) how to read. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, more seriously, um, it is, uh, let me put it, let me make this comparison. I actually did this uh, uh, recently. You're obviously very familiar with the design control guidance that came out in 1997 and and almost 20 years later still has not been updated. And some people have, have argued that it should be updated. I've said it 
at FDA many times, don't touch it. It's written very broadly yes. as it should be yeah. to allow companies to sort of, you know, personalize it, so to speak, for their particular use. I view this th particular 3D printing guidance very much in a, in a similar fashion. I do have, and I've already made some suggestions to FDA on how to tweak it a little bit. But that said, I think that it should not be overly specific because 3D printing, kind of like the design controls, is a very broad topic. And we need the flexibility in order to take what the guidance is suggesting and implement it for our particular application. Any thoughts on that, John? I am a big fan of the FDA's design control guidance. I think it is a, as you mentioned, a very well written document. I don't know, timeless may not be be the right descriptor, but but uh, at least for 20 years, it's served its purpose, in my opinion. And I think the same can be said for this. It's early, but same could be said for this 3D uh, guidance document as well. Although. Even though 3D printing has been around for decades, it seems like a new thing for, for this industry. So I guess it would be interesting to see how 3D printing evolves. I mean, the scenario that you described where the, the, the high school kid printed his own uh, orthodontics, I, I, that's an interesting twist. Uh, another interesting twist that, it, that I could see happening uh, – and I guess the fact that I'm even putting this out there might even inspire somebody to do this. But like a company designing uh, something from a from an electronic standpoint, a medical device or medical technology, and then being able to send electronic files to people at their homes, where the people at home could actually take that file, file import that file, and actually print on their their home 3D printer. I mean, there's all kinds of different scenarios, and I guess that'll be the interesting. Th thing to see as as 3D printing starts to become more and more popular, how this guidance will evolve or if it will need to evolve. Well, that second example, John, uh, actually is not Star Trekky. One no. of the many companies that I'm working with uh, is developing the technology to do exactly that, to be able to design a medical device virtually, not actually make it physically but then license or sell that design to an end user, which can then pr print that part, that device when they need it. So it's from a business perspective, it's really going to change the business model of the medical device industry because think about it this way, traditionally medical device companies, especially disposables companies, their revenue is a function of the number of devices that they sell. But once people are able to start printing devices themselves, how many devices do you think we're going to be selling? So it's a solvable problem from a business perspective, but it's a very different business model. I mean, I think it's interesting that to think about from a technology standpoint, oftentimes a te technological advance actually makes something uh, less of a commodity and and actually increases value add and and makes you know, and oftentimes can make or allow a company to be able to charge somewhat of a premium from a pricing standpoint but the interesting twist here is that 3d printing could actually make some 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 things that are advanced from a technological standpoint and almost commoditize them. I, and I, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about the, the whole economics around that. It's, it's a very interesting topic to, to explore a little bit. And I'm, I'm sure there's, there's probably case studies and things that people have done on that. 
Well, that, that's right. And, and uh, you know, it's beyond the scope of this podcast to dig yeah, into yeah, the yeah. technology too much. But I just want to remind the audience that many people, and we're doing it in our conversation today, are using the phrase 3D printing in almost a ubiquitous sort of a fashion. And right. keep in mind that it's really not. There are a couple of dozen different technologies, a couple of dozen different iterations on this theme. Um, as a matter of fact, for most versions of 3D printing, when you think about it, it's really not 3D printing. It's 2D printing layer on top of layer on top right. of layer. Right. And that's really holding us back. One, uh, A couple of the companies that I'm working with now are, are taking a truly new approach to 3D printing where you actually do 3D printing all at once. Another thing, you know, People, people criticize 3D printing is that it's slow. Um, as a matter of fact, there are, believe it or not, there are some mushrooms that grow faster than some 3D <laughs> printers operate. But that's true for right now. You know, like like any new technology, speed will increase with time, cost will come down with time. So all of those are solvable right. problems. I'm not worried about that. Right. But let's get back to the to the guidance, since I think that's yeah. uh, what's really of interest to your audience. So as I started to say. In that guidance, FDA breaks it into sort of two general categories. One is on the design and manufacturing side, which obviously includes the uh, quality uh, requirements and so on. Uh, and then the other is on the device testing side. Now, I'll just make a quick comment on the device testing, and then um, we can come back to the design and manufacturing, because I know you're a, a quality and, and design control guy, as well as much of your audience. Right. On the device testing side, one of the most important things that FDA reminds people, and I agree 100%, is that a additional device-specific requirements are likely applicable based on the indication or the technology or the risk and so on. So, for example, if you're 3D printing a prosthetic knee, and in the interest of full disclosure, we brought the first implanted knee onto the market almost two years ago now, and I was one of the folks that was involved with that, right. um, there's already uh, a litany of guidance, including testing requirements on prosthetic knees. Right. So what FDA is reminding people of is if you're making a device that already exists, like a like a uh, like a knee, for example, you're just making it using a different manufacturing method. Then likely all of those existing testing requirements for, in this case, the knee, are still going to be applicable. So my bottom line recommendation is do your homework. Yeah. So so find out if you're making an existing device what regulation, what guidance is applicable to that kind of a device already. Of course, if you're making a brand new device, something that's never been used before, now all bets are off. But, right. but I suspect most of your audience is going to be in the former category. Yeah, I would anticipate. And, and you know, just to share a little bit of my personal experience involving 3D printing, I mean, my, my experience goes back almost uh, almost 20 years. I, I can remember the, the, the first 3D prototype that, that I had and held in my hands it was fascinating to me you know it was a it was a component i did i did a lot of work early on in my career with catheter type technologies and and the 3d prototypes that i had were different concepts for an insert molded uh, hub that would be part of a catheter assembly and the advantage of that 3d prototype or model in that case was allow us to explore and make some proof of concept prototypes before we actually invested in hard steel tooling for injection and insert molding purposes. So that was a, a huge economic advantage to be able to do that and do a lot of testing on different concepts. Obviously, that's not a, a, a product we brought to market. 
some other experiences that, that you can explore from a 3D printing. I mean, Mike I'll just shared the, the prosthetic knee. I mean, that to me, that's fascinating that we're doing orthopedic implants using 3D printed products. That, that's just fascinating. And we'll explore that uh, perhaps a bit here as well, some of the advantages to that. But other concepts would be plastic enclosures. Uh, I worked on a dental device a few years ago that had some electronics and we needed to make some some first units basically for some uh, additional clinical testing. Well, we were able to, again, instead of investing in steel tooling for the enclosure, we were able to 3D print the enclosure for that device, just made our path to market so much faster, so much faster than uh, previous means. So that was pretty fascinating. The the um, other opportunity that that I've involved been involved with from three D printing was for aortic aneurysm. Be able to take a, a CT scan of a patient, a specific patient, model and image that, and build a three D model of that patient's aorta, and then use that to custom design and manufacture a stick graft device for that patient. So those are some of my experiences in addition to, to your need. Well, those are all great ex uh, examples, John. Thank you for sharing them. Th those, with all due respect, are the easy ones. Those are ones yeah, that we've right. been doing for a while. Exactly. Uh, just for the benefit of the audience. I mean, 3D printing now, as I, as I mentioned, we have products that we're 3D printing that are permanent implants that are going into patients. We have products that are actually combination products now that we can load with drugs or biologics, like, for example, cells uh, that are 3D printed and going into patients now. We have have 3D printed drugs. I mentioned the first drug that right. was 3D printed that I was uh, involved with last year as well, brought brought through the FDA and on the market now. And we have a growing number of people that are developing ways to be able to print 3D printed living tissue for doing all kinds of things, not just the obvious like organ replacement, but for being able to turn the, turn the way we do drug clinical trials totally upside down. Right. Instead of going from a benchtop testing to an animal test to a clinical test, test. We can go from benchtop to what I call using engineered human tissue, tiny little livers, organoids, if you will, to test new drug candidates and then go directly to the to the clinical trial. Right. So 3D printing is, is truly a, a game-changing technology in, in many ways. But again, for the purposes of the audience, I do think it's it's good to come back to the to the guidance before we run out sure. of time. Sure. So on the testing side, as I said, make sure you do your homework and find out what applicable test methodologies are there out there already for whatever kind of a device that you're working on. Sure. From the design and manufacturing side, and this is where the guidance is much more nebulous, as I think it should be, from a quality, from a design control, from a from a verification and a validation perspective, one of the most common questions that I get from companies that are considering using 3D printing technology, not for printing a prototype or for printing some sort of a fixture, but for printing an actual finished medical device. How would you approach that kind of a product, John, from say a V&V &V from, a, from a validation perspective? Well, it's, it's really fascinating to think about that too. You mentioned your prosthetic knee example and, and, and the case that in the experience that you had being reminded that hey, prosthetic knees have been around for a very long time and FDA has established guidances and expectations from a testing perspective for any prosthetic knee. And, and it's 
pretty clear that it doesn't matter in that case whether you're manu- planning to design and manufacture one knee or a billion knees that the same criteria applies. And I think that's that's the opportunity that we need to understand from, from a design control and from a risk standpoint. You know, I'll dive into the design control maybe just a bit first. Each of those products that you're going to 3D print, I mean, it, if it's going to be a custom component or a custom device specific to a particular patient, that verification becomes uh, potentially a bit of a challenge. You know, it's, you know, from an engineering pr- perspective, I'm trying to, to, to determine kind of my upper and lower threshold, so to speak, from a tolerance standpoint and be able to define the borders, if you will, in order to, to kind of control my verification activities. And, and now that we're talking about unique physiology and unique anatomy on a per patient basis, uh, it kind of blows my mind to some extent. So that becomes a significant challenge. And from a validation standpoint, I think that becomes also somewhat unique. I mean, valid design validation is about demonstrating my product meets the user needs, demonstrating that I designed the correct product. And, and how can I do that if it's a unique device? You know, but I guess it begs the question or, or the thought anyway, Mike, that, that, even as we go through design control process on a mass-produced device, we're generalizing the design characteristics to meet a specific patient population to begin with. So we never really know. And maybe 3D printing actually allows us to have more certainty. Well, John, like many times in the in the past, I think you and I are singing exactly the same song, just maybe in a slightly different key. Yeah. So I agree with, with everything that you just said. I would spin it a slightly different way. When I look at 3D printing, one of the ways that I, that I think about it is it's really just another manufacturing method. And so when it comes to things like design control and verification and validation, what we really have to do, let me try to make this as simple as I can. We, you're exactly right. We, we cannot validate the size of the device in the patient sense because ultimately that will be under the determination of the physician. Right. But it's very easy for me to walk into the FDA and say, you know what? It's not my job to validate the size or the shape of this particular device because that's the, that's the practice of medicine. Right. The, the advantage of this technology is that it allows the physician to say to the machine, make a knee or make whatever it is specifically for this particular patient, exactly like when a physician decides to give a patient a particular drug at either a 10 milligram dose or a 20 milligram dose or a 50 milligram dose. That's exactly um, the practice of medicine and FDA has nothing to do with that. So as engineers and medical device companies, when it comes to the V&V, our job is to make sure that once the physician enters that information into the machine, let's say that the physician or the surgeon says, I need a knee that's 22 millimeters you know, uh, in size, for example. Sure. We need to make sure that our printer is going to print a device that is 22 millimeters inside plus in size plus or minus a you know a particular variance and so on we need to make sure that the mechanical properties of the device are consistent from custom device to custom device to, to custom device mm-hmm. we need to make sure that the biomaterial properties from coming off the device of the 3d printer are consistent from one device to the next to the next and so on right. so this is exactly what i meant earlier when i said 
we really do not need more specific guidance on this, in my opinion, right. just like we don't need it more specific guidance on the design controls. Because if you understand, as you and I have talked about in the past, the philosophy of the design controls, then, uh, you know, never mind so much what the regulation actually says. What is it that we're, you know, intending to do here? That's the most important part. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, and, and, you know, and, and from a risk perspective, same thing, you know, the, the whole premise behind design controls and the whole premise behind capturing your risk management is to ensure that the medical devices that you're designing and developing and manufacturing are safe and effective and meet the intended uses. So... That's exactly right. And just just as a quick example, uh, since you seem to pick up on the the knee example, I'll go into that in a, a tiny bit further, and then we can wrap this up. So when we originally brought this knee to the FDA two years ago, here was the regulatory logic. What if we can show that the knee coming off of our 3D printer is basically the same, i.e. substantially equivalent to the knee coming off of our traditional manufacturing process. Yeah. So uh, let me say that uh, one more time. What if we can show that the knee coming off the 3D printer is basically the same as the knee coming off of the traditional manufacturing process? If I can do that, I can totally remove the knee from the equation. In other words, I don't right. have to say anything about the knee. And now all I have to do is to validate our new manufacturing process. Right. And I can further hedge my regulatory risk, in other words, um, hedge my bet, so to speak, maximize my probability of getting this through the FDA by at least at the beginning, limiting the sizes of the knee that the surgeon can print to correspond to sizes of the knee right. that are already commercially available. Yeah. And then we go back later with a label expansion to FDA and say, okay, now we're going to allow the surgeon to print any size knee that they want as long as it's between X and Y. Right. And where does X and Y come from? It comes from the minimum and maximum of the sizes of the knees that are commercially available. Right. And then we go back a third time to the FDA with yet another label expansion uh, and remove that criteria completely. So in the regulatory world, as you know, John, this is what we call a series of label expansions. We do it in the drug world frequently. We don't do it in the medical device world as, as much, uh, but I do it a lot with devices. And to use a very simple baseball metaphor that I've used before, it's the difference between swinging for a, a single versus swinging for a home run. Yeah. I would much prefer to swing for a home run and get the product on the market with all the bells and whistles at the same time. But th when we swing for a home run, it's a higher likelihood of striking out. So instead, we swing for a single, we come out with a, with all due respect, a dumbed down device where the, the, the printer can only print a couple of sizes of, of knees. And then we get a man on first base, the second batter comes up, they get a base hit, the runner moves from first to second, and, and so on and so on. Right. At the end of the day, we, we end up getting to the same place. It's just that we do it incrementally. Somebody likes what you're saying, Mike, because they <laughs> want to learn more. So. But uh, Mike, uh, this has been a fascinating topic, and, and I'm sure, one that you and I uh, will chat about in the future. So appreciate the insights and sharing your experiences with 3D printing. Again, if folks in listening to this today want to learn more about 3D printing, Mike has significant experience taking many devices to the market through the FDA process using 3D printing. So he's the guy you want to chat with. Mike Drews, D-R-U-E-S, find him on LinkedIn, and he'll be happy to, to help provide guidance and direction as you're developing your new devices. Again, this has been John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru. 
We talked a little bit about design controls today. We talked a little bit about risk management. We didn't dive into quality management system per se, but let's just say if you want to learn a better, faster, easier way to manage your design controls, risk management, and quality management system, be sure to go to greenlight.guru to learn more, request a demo, and we're happy to help. So again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast.